0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our reading. It's Psalm 139. We're going to read from verse 1 to 18. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to
0: God. Thank you, Peter. Good morning. City on a hill. How are we doing? Good to be with you. And thanks so much for joining us. Whether it's your first time in church, your first time in a long time in church, or you are a weekly regular with us. Thanks so much for being with us. If you haven't had a chance to meet before, my name's Nick uh, and get the joy of opening God's Word with you this morning. Uh, And today we dive into the depths of one of the most contentious topics in our culture. And so we need God's help. Would you pray with me as we dive in? Gracious God, in a world of division, outrage, conflict, and confusion, Lord, we thank you that grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. And so help us now, we pray, that we might be pointed toward him, to trust in him, to follow him afresh today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1985, Margaret Atwood wrote what has more recently been adapted into the hit television series, The Handmaid's Tale. It tells the story of a future United States, uh, now called Gilead, where the government has been overthrown by a theocratic religious sect. And due to pollution, the majority of the population are infertile. And a small class of subservient women, the handmaids, are forced, enslaved, to bear children, for society's upper ranks. In monthly ceremonies, handmaids submit to sex with their commanders while their wives supervise, hoping to gain children that they couldn't have otherwise. And if you've seen the show, you'll know it is a, a dark and dystopian story, and it paints a clear picture of how Atwood, the author, envisages the fight between the religious and the free. And today, The distinctive dress of those handmaids as visualised in the TV show, a red cloak and a white hood. That's used by pro-choice activists from Argentina and the United States to visually suggest that any reduction to a woman's right to an abortion would be a similarly authoritarian and abusive religiously motivated threat to women. Recently, as the US Supreme Court debated and then ultimately overturned the famous Roe v. Wade uh, decision, which allowed uh, abortion to be a federal right, Uh, there was a leak in May of the uh, decision, and protesters, draped in those red cloaks, surrounded uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's house, dressed as handmaids. And then when the decision was finally official, author Stephen King tweeted, welcome to the handmaid's Tale, And so this morning we come to this very solemn, very serious issue, the issue of abortion. And what Margaret Atwood and what Stephen King and others have done is position the issue for us. They've shown us that abortion is a litmus test in our culture for supporting the rights of women. And today we have a chance to look at this issue uh, and to test that claim and to look at the issue not through pop culture but through the lenses of Scripture. Now let me acknowledge up front uh, something you hopefully have guessed. I am not a woman. Uh, And so in speaking into this issue, I, I don't draw my authority from my own personal experience, but rather I'm a Christian minister, and so I draw it from the Bible. And we do need God's perspective on this, because we are talking about an issue that's so weighty, it's so heavy... We often don't give it the time to think clearly about it or we don't have the strength to dive into such a serious topic and navigate it as we should because of the emotion around it. And it is right that there be so much emotion around this particular issue. In ethics, this issue is, is uh, known as one of those issues that reminds us we live in a world of competing sorrows, that it seems a lose-lose situation. It concerns matters of life and death, areas of bioethics, theology, philosophy, politics, and in addition, it is very personal. It is said that in Australia, somewhere between one in three and one in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. And further than that, the issue is personal for each one of us, because it reaches into the very heart of what it means to be human, about who we are, about what we believe to be valuable and right. And so what we're talking about today is not, not some kind of theoretical thing out there, rather what we're talking about today touches every person in this room because it's about boys and girls, mothers and fathers, about what it means to be human, about the world that we want to shape and, and live in and step into in the future. And so let's start by just clarifying, so that we're on the same page, what we are talking about. Let's define abortion And to be clear, what we're talking about today is how we should approach what's often called an induced abortion. And this is a procedure performed by a doctor to extract a fetus from its mother's womb with the intent to end its life prior to birth. And the stage of pregnancy will determine what procedure is used. Uh, In Victoria, up till nine weeks, a medication abortion might be used, where a combination of medications will end the pregnancy, But beyond that nine-week period, a surgical abortion will be performed, which involves removing the fetus, and at this point, the the fetus will be somewhere between four and 14 centimetres long, and this is confronting. That removal can involve dismembering and crushing the body. And in Victoria, we are governed by the Abortion Law Reform Act of 2008, which says, and I'm getting this from the act, allows for a registered medical practitioner to perform an abortion up to 24 weeks and beyond 24 weeks with approval from another doctor, if deemed appropriate, based on the woman's current and future physical, psychological and social circumstances. According to the World Health Organization, uh, around the world there are roughly 40 to 50 million abortions every year, or 125,000 abortions per day. In Australia, we don't know exactly what those figures are, it's not all the states report all the data, but the estimates are that there are some 65 to 75,000 surgical abortions per year, and in Victoria, abortion in an operating room was the third most frequent surgical procedure between 2014 and 2016. As for the public sentiment, some 76% of Australians were supportive of abortion in 2021. And so that's a very significant. Majority, And so the question turns to why? Why uh, and what are the prevailing reasons for being pro-choice? So let's first turn to a couple of the reasons for being pro-choice. There are several reasons used in the pro-choice argument. Uh, It is said that abortion provides a safe way to end a pregnancy and if unavailable would result in botched or unsafe abortions and some 47,000 women die every year from unsafe abortions around the world. It's said that abortion protects the health of children because the thought is that if parents don't have the ability to provide for the physical or emotional needs of a baby, it would be worse to bring them into the world. But much like every week of this series, we don't have time to dive into every argument. So let me focus on the two main arguments uh, or the two most central pro-choice arguments. The first is the claim that abortion is not killing meaningful human life. And this is really the crux of the ethics of this whole conversation and debate, the question of what or who is in the womb. And there are two theories or approaches that ethicists typically take when considering this question. And on the the pro-side approach, the pro-choice side approach, uh, is the construction approach or the constructionist approach. If we think about constructing a house uh, when We're going to build a house, we lay that slab of concrete, the foundations, you put the frame in place, you build the roof on top of the frame. At some point along that construction process, that journey, that building goes from raw materials to now be called a house. But It doesn't start out as a house, it starts out as a slab of concrete. And so the thought goes that like that, as a fetus grows inside the womb, that at the beginning, it is not really a valuable human life. It's not yet a baby or a child until some unknown point in the future or in the process of its development, perhaps most commonly at its point of viability, at around 24 weeks, it becomes a baby. And we see this play out in how our culture essentially talks about the issue, or kind of doesn't talk about this. issue. We call it a termination of a pregnancy, or we talk about abortion as health care. And we see this argument or this thought uh, play out more fully in the writings of someone like Australian ethicist Peter Singer. He says, the life of a fetus is of no greater value than the life of a non-human animal at a similar level of rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, and capacity to feel. So those in the womb, in this view, are seen or understood to be less than human persons. And so the argument follows. Abortion should be completely acceptable because it's not a human person in the womb. And then usually because of this conviction, although perhaps sometimes people might concede that There might be genuine human life in the womb. The next key argument follows from the first, usually. That is that, number two, abortion ensures equality for women. This is articulated by journalist Mary Elizabeth Williams. She wrote, "'Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss.' Her life and what is right for her circumstances should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her, always. And she concludes, abortion saves lives not just in the most medically literal way, but in the roads that women who have choice then get to go down, in the possibilities for them and for their families. And I would put the life of the mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. Now, while perhaps not as controversial as William's approach, as with The Handmaid's Tale, the issue of abortion is typically framed in this dichotomy, protecting the rights and equality of women, the right of bodily autonomy, the right to not have to bear the costs associated with pregnancy and motherhood, the right to fulfill one's dreams and not be held back or slowed down by unwanted motherhood. This was powerfully articulated last year in a speech that went viral by young Texan high school graduate, Paxton Smith. Uh, she threw out her pre-approved graduation speech, uh, and because of uh, the time, in the time last year, Texas had just approved a heartbeat bill where abortion became illegal uh, when you could find a heartbeat, she came up with this new speech. She said this, "'I have dreams and hopes and ambitions.' Every girl graduating today does, and we have spent our entire lives working towards our future, and without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I'm terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I'm terrified that if I'm raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I'm talking about this today on a day as important as this, on a day honouring 12 years of hard academic work, on a day where we are all gathered together, on a day where you are most inclined to listen to a voice like mine, a woman's voice, to tell you this is a problem. And it's a problem that cannot wait. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights and a war on the rights of your mothers, a war on the rights of your sisters, a war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. How are we to respond to her words? How are we to process these arguments and this perspective? Because if these two arguments are correct, then abortion seems a no-brainer. That it should be simply a universally offered, non-controversial, simple medical procedure, the access to which should be publicly celebrated. And before turning to the other side of the coin, the, the pro-life position... It's worth seeing the trend here. What comes up in that argument? What comes up in places like The Handmaid's Tale? The abortion debate really becomes a debate about two different things. We are watching, it seems, the same screen and seeing two movies play out on the same screen, two narratives, two sets of facts. And so when it comes to the very commendable impulse to want to uphold the equality and rights of women, we need to remember where that impulse comes from. Where's that desire, that hope? come from, because our culture didn't create it. No, it was handed down to us from the influence of the Christian message. We're going to see this more when we touch on gender equality. It has its its own week in in a few weeks' time. But listen to non-Christian historian Tom Holland, who I quoted him last week. Uh, Here's a different quote from him. He said that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption, that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. Likewise, non-Christian author Louise Perry, she writes in an article that was just published this week, Modern feminism is not an enemy of Christianity. It is its descendant. The moral ideas that form the basis of feminism are derived from Christian values that are, in historical terms, highly unusual. Respect for women and the protection of the vulnerable may seem to us to be universal virtues, but they are not. And we see this in the pages of Scripture that these non Christian historians have picked up on something that emanates from the pages of the Bible because it starts, the Bible starts with this countercultural proposition that all people, Men and women are made in the image of God. That we share together the same value, dignity and worth. And then as we fast forward through it, we come to the the law of Moses handed down from God to Moses to his people. We see that the law of God actually protects women. We see, as we fast forward further, to, to Jesus who embraced, who empowered women. The gospel is held out to the world. That men and women might be invited to, to be heirs together of the grace of life. And so that we as a culture think this way comes from the Bible. And that means that the Bible itself should be a very credible and revi- uh, reliable source for those who resonate with the impulse behind the pro-choice argument. If indeed the motivation is to love and to support women. As so that takes us to now, what about the pro-life argument? Argument. Let's talk about reasons for being pro-life. And the foundation of the pro-life uh, position is quite simple. And that's the conviction, number one, that human life begins at conception. This is where we come to today's Bible reading. It, as Christians, we have the conviction that the Bible is not merely humanity's speculation about God, but God's revelation of himself to humanity. And he reveals to us a very key, important worldview value-shaping realities about who made us, about why we have been created. And he gives us a glimpse into how we've been created as well. Specifically in our passage today, in Psalm 139, we, we get a glimpse inside the womb to what's going on. In verse 13 to 15, it said, "'For you formed my inward parts,' You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And so I shared that there are two approaches that ethicists typically take to the question of life in the womb. One was the constructionist approach. And the other is the developmental approach. And this approach says that we're actually we're not like a house. Rather, we're a bit like a plant. You know, you put, you put a small tree, bury it in your garden, it'll grow, it'll develop, it will enlarge, but fundamentally, a big tree is of the same stuff, is the same essence as a little tree. That's what we see play out here. That that meaningful life is created, we're told. It's made fearfully and wonderfully, intricately woven together, that God himself is involved in the development of this meaningful life, even from the very beginning stages in the womb. That we are not a, a house built from raw, meaningless materials to make something meaningful. Rather, we are created with intrinsic meaning by virtue of God's involvement in developing and forming us. And this also happens to make best sense of the science. These days, we are remarkably blessed to not have to guess what's happening inside the womb. We actually have a a window in. The ultrasound helps us see that this is not merely a a clump of of tissue, but from fertilization, a baby holds all of its unique human DNA and the genetic footprint that will then develop throughout the pregnancy. Here's a little woman that I'm particularly fond of and particularly close to. This This is Aria at 12 weeks behind me. My daughter, who's now three, and you won't miss her now, but at 18 days, her heart was forming and her eyes were starting to develop. At 21 days, her heart was pumping blood throughout her body. At 28 days, she had budding arms and legs. At 30 days, she had a brain and had multiplied by this point 10,000 times. 35 days, she had a mouth, ears, and nose taking shape at 40 days, she had brain waves that could be recorded, recorded. Her heartbeat could be detected. At 45 days, she had all the internal organs of an adult with a little mouth, lips, a tongue. By eight weeks, her hands and feet were almost perfectly formed. By nine weeks, she could bend fingers and suck her thumb. And here she is at 12 weeks, kicking, fanning her toes, opening her mouth. Scott Klusendorf has a helpful acronym SLED. Show that there's actually a lot of uh, very few differences between my daughter at now almost four years old and when she was 12 weeks old, or not very many differences between you and me and when we were also at that stage. There's a difference in size that that you and I are now bigger, there's a difference in level of development that you and I, we we hope, are now smarter and, and stronger, there's a difference in environment that now we're outside of the womb instead of being inside. And there's a difference in degree of dependency in that we still depend on other people for lots of different things, but in obviously different ways. SLED. Now, none of those differences would suggest that the moral value or meaning we place on a life should change. And that leads to the next point in the pro-life position, that if someone is small, if someone has developmental delays or developmental issues or disabilities, if someone is recluse stuck inside, never goes out. If someone's in a coma, we still value their life because, number two, all human life is valuable. This week on uh, Wednesday, I was, uh, had a meeting with other Anglican ministers uh, together. Once a month, we get together in Glen Waverley and it's, it's ironic that I bring that up in a message on uh, life because there wasn't much life going on when there's a meeting of Anglican ministers. But uh, on the way home from a lunch... Uh, there in Glen Waverley, I, I was driving along Waverley Road. And uh, I get to a, 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 what do you call it, traffic lights. Uh, and I'm, I'm a few, row, few cars back in the, the traffic lights. Uh, and the lights go green and nobody moves. And we sat there for, for a whole minute and, and people started getting out of their cars. Like, what's going on? Why, why, why isn't anybody moving? And as I nudged closer and I kind of bent my neck I could see that a a few people had gotten out of their cars and actually gone to the middle of the intersection, and they were standing around what appeared to me to be a dark colored mass of clothing lying in the middle of the intersection at their feet. I thought, could that be a person? Could that be be a a human? Could someone have perhaps fainted or, or fallen over there in the middle of the intersection? Or is it just a mass of clothing? lying there in the middle of Waverley Road. I couldn't see clearly, and so I had no idea. I didn't know. It turned out, actually, that as I was able to kind of inch around what was going on, that it actually was a person. And by the time I passed, they were, they were up and about and kind of being cared for by the crowd that had been around them. Now, think about it. Would it, would it be right for me to just have driven on, straight ahead, over what I assumed perhaps to be a whole lump of clothing? because I, I didn't know what it was. Would it be right to just go on ahead and perhaps plead ignorance and say, oh, I wasn't sure, I didn't, I didn't know what it was? In the same way, no, if there is any uncertainty over the personhood and life of a preborn baby, surely we don't risk its life. And we should think like that, again, because the Bible it begins with that incredible reality that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Later in the law of Moses, we see that that accidental deaths are treated in a certain way. That the perpetrator of an accidental death is is able to to run to a, a city of refuge. And yet we see that for deaths involving pregnant women, that they're treated as though there is valuable, meaningful life in the womb. All human life is valuable and worth protecting. All human life is valuable and worth protecting. And in reality, our culture has been so shaped by the Bible that that we know this. Our our society has been built upon this. And we live in a, a tangible contradiction about this issue then, about abortion. Because right now, in Victoria, in the same state that you can legally terminate the life in your womb... You can also log on to a government website and apply for a certificate to recognise a child that you have lost through miscarriage. A life that's meaningful. A loss that is tragic and devastating and rightly should be commemorated and mourned and grieved. And so I think it's a great thing that the government offers this to grieving mothers and fathers who have lost their children through miscarriage. But it is strange, isn't it? To have that option, to help people mourn the loss of life in the womb on the one hand, and at the same time, celebrate and defend the opportunity to terminate life in the womb on the other. The value of human life should not be determined by whether it is wanted or not. That is a very shaky moral foundation upon which to build a society, but rather the Bible tells us all human life is valuable and worth protecting. Whether that life is, is relatively healthy, whether that human image-bearer is severely disabled and dependent on others, whether that life is young or old, rich or poor, male or female, the Bible stirs in us this conviction that all human life is valuable and worth protecting. And this also highlights something that is almost universally upheld in those who have a pro-life position, that in pregnancies where the mother is at risk, that there are complex exceptions to ensure the mother is protected, that her life is also valuable. And so if these two arguments are correct on the pro-life side, and if we're to be consistent with them, then we would have to say that the greatest tragedy occurring in the world right now That the greatest humanitarian and human rights crisis in the world right now is that 40 to 50 million little boys and girls are killed through abortion each and every year around the world. There's also another argument to be pro-life and it arises from the same Bible that speaks to the life and value of the unborn and it speaks to the life And value of women. And that is number three, that abortion harms women. I believe that abortion actually undermines the very goals for which it is said to be necessary. Brutally, there are far less women in the world because it's little girls who are most often aborted through sex selection, making them disproportionately vulnerable. But in addition, the reason that our world is disproportionately and sometimes very passionately pro-choice is that abortion is seen as the solution to the inequality of women who have to shoulder the higher costs of bearing children. And we can sympathize with that. It is true. Women bear the higher costs of pregnancy and childbirth and child rearing. Mothers, we love you. Yet the promise of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the attempts to kind of detach child-rearing from sex through the pill and then through abortion, it hasn't actually helped to solve that issue of inequality. Instead, it's just given more freedom to sexually selfish men. Economists George Akerlof and Janet Yellen wrote in the 90s, by making the birth of the child a physical choice of the mother, the sexual revolution has made marriage and child support a social choice of the father. And so it's harder to hold men to account for pregnancy. And it's women who end up bearing all the baggage and shame and trauma and post abortion regret while men walk away onto their next partner. Dr. Emma Wood, a research fellow with the think tank Women's Forum Australia, She spoke recently on the John Dixon's very helpful podcast, "Underceptions." She says this, I think there's something intrinsically anti-woman about the pro-abortion stance. Because what the pro-abortion stance says to a woman is that in order to be able to advance professionally, to advance in her education, to be a useful citizen, what the pro-abortion message says to a woman is that she has to be at war with her own body. She has to be at war with the natural processes of her own body. She can't achieve equality with men unless she is like a man Namely, not pregnant. And so, we're taking all of this together. I believe Christians should stand up for women and advocate for women and support women, both the little women in the womb, who are often the most vulnerable through sex selection, and for all women by being pro life. Abortion is a great blight on our day and in our world that so values and advocates for human rights so wants to be on the right side of history, I believe and hope that one day, we're going to look back at our day today, same and similar ways that we look back at our world from years gone past and a shock, be shocked at how cruel and callous our world has been toward the unborn, toward the women and the mothers particularly who bear the side effects of that. And so what are we going to do? What are we to do as Christians in light of this? Let's talk about how we should respond. I've got three particular encouragements. The first is to raise your voice for the vulnerable. One of the reasons the Bible is so pro-woman and has radically supported the status of women throughout history is that it tells us to support the marginalized. Proverbs 31 says, Open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. In other words, raise your voice for those who don't have one. So that means we need courage to advocate for the vulnerable, to advocate for life. And for sure, we live in a democracy and the vast majority of our society is pro-choice. As I said, 76% in Australia. In our state, particularly in Victoria, this is not even a left and right issue. Both major parties are settled in their pro-choice stance. But there are many practices that we now scoff at that were once majority supported in history. And so whether it's going to move the needle or not, this is a matter about what is right and not what's pragmatic. So let me encourage you to raise your voice for the vulnerable. Now, that might include advocating politically. But it could also include other things that perhaps you haven't thought about. Donating or volunteering time with pregnancy and early parenting support. It might be merely celebrating pregnancy and parenthood and motherhood. It might be grieving appropriately when there's loss and lamenting the reality of, of miscarriage and helping people through that. But we should be positively, generously warmly, compassionately pro-life. Number two, second encouragement, is to show your support for women. I hope you've heard that the way that we should understand the pro-life position is that it is pro-women. So that means that in addition to advocating for little girls and boys in the womb, we need to advocate for mothers and women because the Bible pushes us to do both. It's not buy-in to this narrative that the world puts before us, that it's a a choice, that it's a false dichotomy between women and pregnancy. We should be supporting women who find themselves overwhelmed and pregnant. We should be advocating for government policies that encourage women and parents to continue with their pregnancy, things like parental leave and childcare support and other family-supporting initiatives. Being pro-life means we need to step into the responsibility we have as a society to provide for an environment where mums feel supported, to carry along a baby. And if you're a woman in our church who finds yourself with an unplanned pregnancy, you should know that the church, and I hope our church, would be a place that's going to support you in that, bless you, help you, make that difficult and anxious time in your life far more easy for you. We want to do that better. And finally, the third encouragement is to find hope and healing from shame and scars. If the statistics are to be believed, and I think they are, right now, today, we have women and men for whom this topic right now affects you in a very personal and confronting way. Perhaps there are fathers who have abdicated their responsibility and walked away. Perhaps there are boyfriends who have pressured or pushed their women toward an abortion. Mothers who have had that grueling decision and then cited or pursued an abortion. And so if that's you today or if you're tuning in with us online, then good on you for being here. I just want to say thank you for coming, knowing what we would discuss today. You are welcome here. I want to be clear as I have been about anything this morning, that there is nothing that you have done that cannot be forgiven, that cannot be brought to God in repentance, and for which you cannot find healing. There is no shame that cannot be redeemed and replaced by God's love and God's grace. There is great hope for all people in Jesus. I started by highlighting the the very provocative persuasion of the handmaid's tale. And in the handmaid's tale, there's there's a way that the the handmaids greet each other on the street using this very religious and antiquated language of of blessed be the fruit. And the phrase that that Margaret Atwood there would have them say to one another uh, is used in the context to kind of paint for us this picture of of religious regression that we're such a a backward society, to have us kind of scoff at it and and scowl at it with our our modern minds. But that phrase is actually a a shortened version of what Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who herself is pregnant with John the Baptist, what she said when she first met Mary pregnant with Jesus. We read about this in in Luke chapter 1. to rejoice at the good news that Jesus was coming into the world was his pre-born cousin, John the Baptist, still in his mother's womb. That baby knew that blessing was coming into the world, a blessing that would reach out into the world. And so blessed be the fruit indeed. We share in the fruit, the fruit of Mary's womb who brought good news to the world, good news that all of us Wherever we're from, whatever we've done or left undone, all of us uh, have the opportunity for our estrangement from our Maker, our estrangement from the God who made us and formed and fashioned us fearfully and wonderfully to be reconciled to Him. The good news that, that all of us can have our sin, all of us can have our shame, all of us can have our regret nailed to the cross of Christ with Him. The good news that we can come back to God, that we can be found, forgiven, and freed in him. The good news that Jesus lived in your place and Jesus died in your place. You see, to a world that shouts, this is my body. Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. I'm giving my body for you. I'm giving my life for you so that you could come back to the Father and know him as your heavenly Father. Jesus laid down his life so that you could find life in his name. And so let us be that church for you. Let us be a church, a community, a people to support you, to remind you of this glorious good news that will offer you life and support your life and walk with you in your life. And so if this is you and you want to process any of what you've heard this morning, let me invite you to come down the front at the end of our service today and please pray with the team who are here and available and eager to support you in this time. We love you. God loves you so much that He sent His Son for you. And so church, let us be that kind of church that gets around people, that gets around mothers, that gets around women. And it helps support life, that we might be a place of light, of life, and of love. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we praise you for the goodness of what you have done in the world, that you have created us, formed and fashioned us. Lord, that our lives aren't of our own making, our lives are a gift given by you. And Lord, we are conscious as we come to issues like today's, that life and death are matters almost too weighty for us to bear. And so we come before you, humbly acknowledging that you are the source of life. And we thank you that even though we've, we've run from you, even though we've strayed from you, even though we've, we've turned away, Lord, you have come by sending your son Jesus into the world that you've made to offer us life and life abundant. And so Lord, forgive us for how we ourselves have not supported life. Forgive us how we have have bought in to sin, how we have bought in to rejection of you. Forgive us how we've not honored those made in your image, how we should have. Forgive us for the ways that we do that even now today. And Lord, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to see in Jesus this this radically countercultural love for the vulnerable, for the voiceless, for the marginalized. Lord, help us see that you are comprehensively pro-life and that all people made in your image are valuable and are worthy and all people have the opportunity and the invitation to come to you and find new life in your name. And so help us have the courage and the humility to come to you, to step into the world with you, to be a, a city on a hill in this city, in this country, in this world, that we might shine that we might be distinct for our love and for our compassion, for our generosity, for our warmth, for our support. We can't do that in our own strength. In our own strength, Lord, we, we become that caricature, of religiosity. Lord, we need your strength to bring real light and real love into this world. And so come and do that and compel that in us and bear the fruit out of us. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.